right. Good, good evening. Good to see each of you here tonight. How many are glad to be here? All right. <laughs> you know, when you get to be a certain age, you're just glad to be anywhere. Amen. <laughs> you know, um, I just had a birthday last Sunday, and uh, your pastor called me Sunday night, last past Sunday night, and... Um, well, I, I, I don't, I don't want, well, I was going to tell you, I caught up with my wife. She's older than me by three months. And so I have to teach her about being an older person uh, for at least three months. And then I catch up to her. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, we had a little joke inside of our family where we, would, took a, we took the happy birthday song, which is alive and glad, and we kind of merged it with a funeral dirge, which is plaintive and sad. So it sounds about like this. Instead of saying happy birthday to you, we sing happy birthday. And then there's a verse that goes like that. It says, bunions, bulges, bifocals too, teeth held in with denture glue. Happy birthday. Doesn't that sound great? Okay, we kind of we have fun with it. Uh, wrinkles all around your face. Your appearance brings disgrace. Happy birthday. You know, anyway, it's not, it's not the normal or traditional way of wishing somebody a happy birthday. Not at all. And you know what? He and my, my son James, who's a missionary to Honduras, you know they sang that to me over the phone last Sunday night. I felt so much better, didn't I? <laughs> all right. But uh, your pastor is doing well. I, the, God's blessing them in a great way. Uh, my son was telling me they had 167 on his bus route uh, that came to church. The 125 were actually on the bus. And uh, reminds me when I was in uh, at another church uh, near Chicago while I was in Bible college, uh, we had a bus captain one day rolled into the church with 222 on his bus. On one bus, it's a 72 passenger bus. He had 222. Uh, my friend who was working traffic that day, and by the way, I never recommend this because it's just not safe. But they had a little boy with his face pressed up against the little glass on the emergency door in the back of the bus. His face was pressed up against the uh, the, the glass like this, and he was crying because he could not move his face. <laughs> yes, and he had just too many people. You remember the old. Um, Pictures they used to take back in the 50s when people cram into a telephone booth, you know. It was sort of like that, but it was on a much larger scale. Anyway, uh, so they had a large attendance, and they had a, a number of people get saved. That was the moral of that story. So we, we praise the Lord for what God's doing in Honduras, and I'm glad your pastor, my son Richard, got to, got to go down there. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 2 Samuel 9. Richard uh, is named after two pastors. I don't know if you are aware of that. My wife and I named Richard after our two pastors. My pastor was Richard White. Her pastor was Wayne Cowling. I met her in Bible college. She's a Michigander. I'm from Louisiana originally. Uh, but uh, we named Richard after two pastors. And we always knew that he was going to be a pastor, so I'm very glad he's your pastor. Amen. But Second uh, Samuel chapter 9, as we begin the message... Uh, well, first, let me, let me have a word of prayer and ask, ask, invoke God's blessing on the service tonight. Father, as we approach the time of the preaching of your word, we pray that you quieten our hearts. Uh, help us, Father, just to draw a circle around our self, to block out everything else, and to listen intently and cooperatively with the Holy Spirit's voice. Pray that you'll bless the service, bless the, 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 uh, the sermon tonight. Help me to say those things that will be a challenge to each one of us, may all of us find a way to apply the message to our lives and 
be more like Christ, in whose name we pray and ask it all. Amen. We're going to take a passage out of 2 Samuel 9. We'll read the first 13 verses in just a moment. But before we start, uh, I'd like to read uh, the, uh, the story of the Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son, in the key of F. Now, what do I mean the key of F? You'll, you'll figure it out in just a moment. This is the story of Luke 15, the prodigal son, in the key of F. Feeling footloose and frisky, a feather-brained fellow forced his father to fork over his farthings. Fast he flew to foreign fields and frittered his family's fortune, feasting fabulously with faithless friends. Flooded with flattery, he financed a full-fledged fling of fun and fast food. Fleeced by his fellows in folly, facing famine and feeling faint, faint, he found himself a feed-flinger in a filthy foreign farmyard. Feeling frail and fairly famished, he fain would have filled his frame with forged food from the fodder fragments. Fooey, he figured. My father's flunkies fare far fancier. The fugitive face, said the fugitive, facing the facts. Finally, frustrated from failure and filled with foreboding, but following his feelings, he fled from the filthy foreign farmyard. Far away, the father focused on the fretful, familiar form in the field and flew to him and finally flung his forearms around the fatigued fugitive. Falling at his father's feet, the fugitive forlornly, forlornly said, Father, I have flunked and fruitlessly forfeited family favor. Finally, the faithful father, forbidding and forestalling further flinching, frantically flagged the flunkies to fetch forth the finest fatling and fix a feast. Faithfully, the father's first born was in a fertile field fixing fences, while father and fugitive were feeling festive. Well, you know the older brother didn't like it when the prodigal came home. But so frowning and finding fault, he found his father and fumed floozies and foam from frittered family funds, and you fixed a feast following the fugitive's falderall? The firstborn's fury flashed, but fussing was futile. This frugal firstborn felt it, it, it was fitting to feel favored for his faithfulness and fidelity to family, father, and farm in foolhardy fashion. He faulted the father for failing to furnish a fatling and feast for his friends. His folly was not in feeling fit for feasts and, and, and fattling for friends. Rather, his flaw was in his feeling about the fairness of the festival for, his, for the found fugitive. That's a mouthful. <laughs> anyway, his fundamental fallacy was a fixational favoritism, not forgiveness. The far-sighted father said, Such fidelity is fine, but what forbids fervent festivity for the fugitive that is found? And unfurl the flags and finery, let fun and frolic freely flow. Former failure is forgotten, folly is forsaken, forgiveness forms the foundation for future fortune. Amen? <laughs> that is the prodigal son in the key of F. We're going to talk tonight about a little bit of a different type of prodigal. Let's look together at 2 Samuel and begin. we'll begin reading at verse, nine, or verse 1 excuse me, of chapter 9. And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called, unto him, called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son who is lame, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? 
Then Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amuel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan, thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul, thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant, that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have forgiven unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thy master's son may have food to eat. And thou shalt bring him in the fruits that the master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread away Always at my table, now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. So we continue to read uh, down to verse 13. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table, and was lame on both of his feet. Now as we pick up the story in Second Samuel 9, David's life could not be better. Uh, he had been anointed by Samuel earlier in his life. Uh, there was all the drama that took place around the time that Saul was hunting him. He was fleeing for his life. There was a terrible uh, chapter in David's life where he was the enemy of the state, literally, and had to be on guard all the time and live out in the wilderness. There was times when his own country disowned him, and he had to live even with the Philistines at times. But now he's just been crowned. The throne room, I think, smelled of fresh paint. The Ark of the Covenant, which David had brought back to Jerusalem, was comfortably installed in the, temp- in the temple. Gold and silver were now overflowing the king's coffers. Israel's enemies maintained their distance. They were a little bit afraid of David and his uh, reputation as a great military tactician. God had given Israelite, the, the Israelite as a nation there was a great time of peace and prosperity, unparalleled up to that time. David's days of ducking Saul in the wilderness were a distant memory. And everything's going his way, but yet he can't quite put his finger on it. I can imagine that there's something that's missing, something that's undone. I just can't quite, oh, and then he remembered his promise to Jonathan. You see, during all the drama that took place where David was fleeing for his life, Jonathan had been a friend, had been a loyal friend to David. The Bible says they had a love for one another that surpassed even the love between a man and woman. They, not, a, not a sensual way, but I'm talking about a great friendship way. And uh, they had a great love for one another. And David um, promised Jonathan at some point, if something happens, I'll take care of your family. He remembered that promise that he had made to Jonathan back when, when Saul was threatening his life. He said, if you die, Jonathan, I'm going to show kindness, loving kindness to your family Jonathan did die, as we read the story. He and Saul were killed in battle with the Philistines. Jonathan died, but David's promise didn't die. To David, and this is the message, this is all introduction, but I want you to get this. To David, a covenant was no small matter. He had made a covenant, a promise. And he knew that remaining faithful to that promise could be ever bit as challenging as facing Goliath. But David remembered his promise. He said, I gave my word. He said, I want to be a promise keeper. I want to not break my covenant. And so as we pick up the chapter, he's summoning Ziba, 
the former servant of Saul. And, of course, we read in verse 3 that uh, he asked Ziba, is there any remaining of the house of Jonathan, of the house of Saul? And, of course, Ziba knew there was one young man, one young man that was the son of, of Jonathan. His name was Mephibosheth. But I want you to look back with me at verse 3. Notice a good, notice carefully the way Ziba answered the question that David asked. And Ziba said unto the king, verse 3, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. At this point, Ziba mentions no name. He doesn't identify who that son is. And he mentions very prominently that the boy's lame. Now, we, we sense a, a very thinly veiled disclaimer here. Uh, David, uh, you know, he's got a son, but, um, you know, I don't really think you want to pursue this very very far. You know, the boy is lame in his feet. He's, uh, he's a kind of a ward. Uh, he's, he's very dependent. Uh, he's not really palace material. I don't know that you really want to get involved with somebody like this. And it's a little bit like that. He said, let me just put this delicately, David. He's, he's not really what we would want around here. Now, Ziba didn't give any details. We read in the, in the fourth chapter about what happened to Mephibosheth, the fourth chapter of Second Samuel. Um, by the way, Mephibosheth, isn't that a great name? <laughs> Aren't you glad you didn't get named Mephibosheth, you men? Okay. Some of the Bible names are interesting names, are they not? Um, you know, I'm glad my mom didn't name me Mayher Shalahashbaz. <laughs> that's one of the Bible names. You know, uh, speedy to the spoil, rapid to the plunder. That's what that verse, that name means. But uh, I'm glad that uh, the Bible names typically meant something in those days. But uh, Mephibosheth, we found um, in Second Samuel verse uh, chapter 4, we read about what happened with Mephibosheth. When he was five years old, his father and grandfather, we know Saul and Jonathan were were killed uh, when they had the battle with the Philistines. Knowing the brutality of the Philistines, all of the family of Saul ran for their lives. I mean, they were fleeing. They were getting out of Dodge. They were getting out as quickly as possible. They knew that if the Philistines caught up with them, they, they, would, they would be hunted. They would be killed immediately. And so in their her haste, a nurse had snatched up Mephibosheth, began running with him, and it tripped and in the tripping process, she dropped Mephibosheth. He, both, he broke both of his ankles, and he was incurably lame from that point forward. They had um, uh, ran off with him, and they had escaped over the Jordan River to a, a windswept, very uh, desolate area, very inhospitable area. It was uh, a picture maybe a trailer park in the middle of an Arizona desert with tumbleweed and cacti and mesquite. <laughs> That's about what Lodabar was. The Lodabar name means literally without pasture. It was just a desolate place, no green grass. Uh, and here is where Mephibosheth was, was choosing to lay lo low and to keep a low profile because there, there are people out looking for him. And he had a price on his head. First, the Philistines were going to kill him. And then what happened when he found out David ascended to the throne? Now David's going to kill him because he's an heir to Saul. And so he is there laying low. And, and here's Ziba saying, listen, David, I don't know if you really want this guy. I don't know if you really want this, the likes of him in the palace. Are you sure, David? Are you really sure this is what you want? So David said, I'm, I'm sure. I made a promise. 
I made a promise. I made a solemn vow to Jonathan, my friend. I'm going to take care of your family. Ziba, go and, and fetch Mephibosheth. So the king's men cross the river. They go down into Lodabar to fetch Mephibosheth. He's brought into the palace. Uh, we read in the passage, and he's carried right into the king's presence. No doubt, he's fearing the worst. He falls on his face in verse 8. He says, What is thy servant, that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? But David cited his promise. He said, Jonathan, he said, Jonathan was my great friend. And he said, I made a promise. And listen, I want you to be restored to everything that belongs to your family. Everything is going to be given back to you. Everything. You're going to have everything that belongs to And by the way, you're going to sit at my table. I mean, faster than you can say the Mephibosheth twice. Goodbye, Lodabar. Goodbye, poverty. Hello, real estate, royalty, and riches. <laughs> he was really in a good position suddenly. I mean, if you were sitting home and you had the, the publisher house clearing people come to your door with the balloons. You remember on, you know how they do that Super Bowl Sunday? And they tell you, you know, you've just won this huge megapot jackpot. That's the way he felt. Wow, what a great thing. David could have sent him money. He could have said, David, I'll just send him a little bit of money, get, provide him a pension. But no, he didn't provide him a pension. He provided him a place. He said, I'm going to show kindness to little to Jonathan's son. And, uh, you know, you say, Brother, Brother Jern, why did he do that? Did he impress David some way? Was, he, uh, was David somehow coerced? No, it, the, the truth of the story is, is that David was not in any way influenced by Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth did nothing to deserve any of this. You see, a promise prompted David. The king is kind, not because the boy is deserving, but because his promise was enduring. Did you catch that? The king was kind. The king was a promise keeper. And it was not because of the boy, because anything that he deserved is because of the heart of the king, that promise that he made, and it was enduring. And it did endure. If you follow in Scripture the life of Mephibosheth, he basically beds down in the palace and, we, and he disappears. You don't hear about him for about 15 years in Scripture. And then uh, there's, a, there's a lot of drama taking place. Absalom, the king, David's son, uh, marshals an army, steals the hearts of the men of Israel, and brings an army and is going to run a coup d'etat, uh, overthrow the throne of David. And David, rather than fight a civil war, a bloody civil war, takes his men and leaves the city. And, of course, uh, as we read that, as that saga unfolds, um, Ziba flees with David as he leaves the city. When David asks about Mephibosheth, Ziba tells David that Mephibosheth sided with the enemy, sided with Absalom. After Absalom dies and David returns to Jerusalem, Mephibosheth gives David a, a different story and says, No, I didn't side with Absalom. Ziba left me behind. Now, who's telling the truth? We don't know, do we? Did David ask? I don't think David even asked. But David made a promise, you see. Whether Mephibosheth was loyal to David or whether he was... Uh, turned and rebelled against David and followed Absalom. We don't know in Scripture. It doesn't matter to David. You see, Mephibosheth's place in the palace did not depend upon his behavior. It depended upon David's promise. Did you catch that? It wasn't about him. It wasn't the condition of David. So you say, Brother Jordan, why was David so loyal? How was he so loyal? 
How did he uh, find such a quarry in his heart to, to have such unrelenting resolve? How did he quarry that? How was he able to fulfill such a giant promise? Well, I think that David, if you would have asked him, and maybe if you ask him in heaven, he's probably going to tell you, it's not about me, it's about God. God is a promise keeper. He's the original promise keeper. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 9, please. You see, David would say, no, 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 don't look at me as an example of keeping a promise when it was hard to do. I want you to look at someone who is infinitely better at keeping promises that are infinitely harder to keep than my promise. He is the one that set the standard for keeping promises. Exodus chapter 9, look with me at verse 7. We'll read down through verse 9. The Lord did not set his love upon you, talking about the children of Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Look at verse 9. And this ought to give you just chill bumps. Know, therefore, that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. You see, God makes and never breaks His promises. Amen? Can you, can you rejoice with me in that tonight? Isn't that, isn't that just wonderful? He is a promise keeper. He uh, makes a covenant, and he never keeps it. The Hebrew word for covenant is berith, and it does mean a solemn agreement with binding force. God's irrevocable covenant runs like a scarlet thread through the tapestry of Scripture. You remember God's promise to to Noah? He said what? He said, I'm going to put this rainbow over the earth. And what does that mean as as a sign of my what? My promise. I'm never going to what? I'm never going to flood the earth again. Do you know astronauts uh, up above in, in space looking down on a rainbow t- uh, say that a rainbow is a perfect circle? It's not this arch that we see. From space, w- the way God looks at it, it's a what? It's a perfect circle. It never, it's a never-ending, unbroken sign of God's unending, equally unbroken promises. If you want to think about promise-keeping and solemn agreements, think about Abraham for a minute. When God wanted to tell Abraham, listen, I'm going to make your seed. You, you see how hard it is to count the stars? I'm going to, it's, it, it'll be equally as challenging to count your seed. That's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to make your seed almost like counting the stars. It's going to be so unbelievably numerous. And he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. He literally had Abraham. This would be in the, in the culture of the Far East. They would... They have different customs over there. Sometimes we don't understand those customs. Remember when Boaz had to be the kinsman redeemer for Ruth, and, and they had the, the near redeemer, uh, a near kinsman, nailed his shoe to the to the post of the door as a sign he wasn't going to pick up that option. Remember that in the Bible? Well, they have different customs over there. One of the customs of you made a covenant or an agreement with somebody, what you would do is you'd take, kill animals, you'd cut them in half, and you'd lay half on each side with a path in the middle. And then you would walk through the middle of those animals that had been bifurcated and cut in half. You walk through those animals as a sign that you are volunteering the same thing to happen to you if you broke that promise. 
Now, that's pretty graphic, is it not? That's graphic. Abraham, in order to secure the oath and to seal that covenant in that ancient Eastern tradition, did the same thing. He said, may I meet the same fate if I break my word on my covenant? See, God takes promises very seriously, and he seals them very dramatically. Another illustration in the Bible. How many are familiar with the story of Hosea? Brother John back there, you know, you know that story? What was his wife's name? Okay. <laughs> okay, now they were talking about Bible names earlier. Okay, his wife's name was Gomer. Yes, Gomer. Now you know Gomer Pyle, don't you, from the TV show? <laughs> okay. <laughs> now would you men want to marry somebody named Gomer? Here's my wife, Gomer. In the Bible there's a guy named Dodo, you know. Said, do you remember that's, uh, the, the guy in the Bible named Dodo? He said, uh, this is Dodo's son, you know. I'd just like to be called the son of Dodo. <laughs> but uh, that's Dodo's boy, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, his wife's name was Gomer. Now, it was an interesting story because God told Jose, I want you to go and I want you to marry a woman and I want you to marry somebody that's not very, okay, she does not have any moral fiber. She is someone who is very loose. As a, as a person, it doesn't have uh, very promiscuous. I don't want to go into too much detail, but um, this was about 300, about 700 years before the birth of Christ. This is what God told Hosea to do. Go marry uh, Gomer. Now, Hosea obeyed. Uh, during their marriage, Gomer gave birth to three children. None of them were fathered by Hosea. All of them were fathered by people she had been unfaithful to her husband with. One day, uh, after when, when Hosea is trying to rear these three children, Gomer up and abandons him. And she goes into a life of debauchery and lasciviousness. I mean, it's a terrible situation. And uh, this, this goes on for many years. And then one day, Hosea hears, Gomer's going to be sold as a slave, a common slave on the auction block. She's going to be sold as a slave. Gomer takes everything he has and goes to that auction and buys I mean, Hosea goes to the auction and buys Gomer back. And God says, listen, Hosea, I want you to do this because I'm, going to, I'm illustrating through your life what I go through as the God who loves his nation and sees them in an unfaithful way commit idolatry going after other gods, but I, I remain faithful. You see, God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises when we're not faithful. So let me make this personal tonight, and I'm just, I'm almost done. Before you were saved, uh, in, a, in, a, in a spiritual sense, well, in a physical sense, we're all a part of God's creation. But you think about it, when we were born, we were born in sin. The Bible says, in, in sin that our mother conceived us. We were born, in other words, with a sinful nature. You see, Adam and Eve were like that nurse that snatched up Mephibosheth, and, and running, running away, she stumbled and dropped Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was crippled. Well, we were crippled by sin. Adam and Eve stumbled in the Garden of Eden, did they not? We were languishing in a, in a spiritual sense. We were lang, languishing in Lodabar. Think about it. You're just like Mephibosheth. You're living in a desolate area, spiritually desolate, dry, and, and barren. One day, a palace messenger came, didn't he? Maybe it was your friend. Maybe a co-worker, maybe it was somebody that was just a soul winner that came to your door. Maybe you came to church and you heard a message. Someone came and gave you the message from the, from the palace, did they not? Hey, 
they said, we've got news. You're never going to believe this. The king has placed for you a seat at his table. He's printed the little card, the little placard card. Miss Angela can make those with her computer. (laughs) He's printed a beautiful place setting for you. He wants you to come and sit at his table. Now, is it because of your IQ? Is it because of your retirement account? Is it because of your organizational abilities? No, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. You see, you have a place at this heavenly banquet because it's covenant-caused, covenant-secured, and covenant-based. You can put Lodabar in the rearview mirror, the palace messenger said, uh, for one reason. God's going to keep His promise. He said what? If you call on me, I will what? I'll save you, right? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Wasn't that a promise? Did you, did you listen and heed that promise? If you did, now you have a seat at the king's table. So that's personal. I'm making it personal. Let me, let me make it practical for you. When you and I minister to other people, look right up here. When we find someone that's not very suitable, remember what Ziba was, how he was acting toward Mephibosheth? Eh, you know, I don't think this is the kind of person you really want sitting at your table, David. He's not palace material. When we go after people that just are the unlovely, if we're like Paul, we spend and be spent for the, for the sake of the cause of Christ. When we're like the prodigal father keeping the porch light on for a prodigal child, when we're praying fervently and waiting expectantly and loving and forgiving unconditionally, when we're doing right even when others are mistreating us and doing wrong, when we love the weak, comfort the... Uh, the brokenhearted, and we, we uh, help to heal the sick, and we, we're doing what God does every moment. When we have compassion on and weep over those and tirelessly love others and try to win them to Christ, we're showing that covenant love, that unconditional love, that love that has nothing to do with someone deserving it. You see, that's what God said. It's easy to love those that love you. Not so easy to love other people that are unloving or unlovable. Covenant keeping enrolls us, you see, in a postgraduate school of God's love. God wants us to illustrate that covenant love. David did that with Mephibosheth. He was a walking parable of God's loyalty. Hosea did that with Gomer. He modeled how to keep a commitment. You know, I'm interested to say this. A lot of times you read that story about Hosea and Gomer and you think about how marriages are today. People don't really have a very strong commitment, do they, in many cases. You know, they just, they, marriage is just something that's convenient. If it's inconvenient, well, we'll just toss it aside. Uh, you know, when, you, when I stood at the altar and I said, I do, I did. <laughs> My wife and I have been married for 40, what? 40 years. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> and then now, okay. We just had our 40th anniversary. Um, we got married in 82. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 41 years this December. That's what I was trying to come up with. All right. But um, let me ask you a question. Uh, this, is, this is practical. Do you, do you keep your word? Do you keep your promises? 
I've known people, I mean, it's, it's crazy in the world we live in, the way people write up all these legal contracts, and there's all the fine print, and you've got a whole team of lawyers that, that craft this special fine print, 15-page contract, and then uh, you don't have to, then they back out of it somehow. And you've got to get a whole team of lawyers just to understand what was written. Uh, there's not a lot of covenant keeping these days. In fact, um, the Bible says in the last days, men shall be what? Truce breakers. But what about you? Uh, do you keep your word? Do you follow through when you make a commitment? I'm talking about the big things, the small things. Do you pay your debt? Do you pay them when they're on, on time? Uh, you know, being a school principal for years, I just sometimes would shake my head. Wow, I would say to myself, how is that possible? I had a guy come in, he owed the school about $6,000, and he said, uh, my kids won't be in school next week. We're, we're taking a vacation to Disney World. I said, oh, you are? In the middle of the school year? And you're taking it with the tuition money that you owe the school. Thank you. God bless you. <laughs> be warmed and filled, brother. Okay. And, you know, it's a little bit like that. You just got to shake your head. Wow, how is that possible? But we have to be people of our word. We have to be people that meet, meet our obligations and meet our uh, commitments. Uh, if you make a commitment to the ministry around here, are you dependable? Um, when you say, I do at the altar with your wife and you made a vow, do you, do you plan to honor that commitment? Uh, to God, you see, giving your word, making a commitment is no small matter. You know, sometimes uh, as I read the Scriptures and, and I see uh, the names that God gives these various individuals. Remember Moses? The Bible says, uh, God said, Moses, my servant. That was his moniker. He said what? Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham was, was called the what? Friend of God. You see these different monikers in Scripture that God uh, gives. Even young ladies, you know, the Bible says about Mary, she did that which she, which she could, which is an amazing statement if you think about it. She did that which she could. But what does that God say about David? He's a man after what? Mine own heart. When I read that, I think, I sometimes say, I know what happened in the life of David. And I think, wouldn't have Joseph or Daniel, the, some of these guys that nothing is that negative has ever said about, wouldn't they be somebody that God would say, that is the man after my own heart? But he chose whom? David. Do you know why it probably was David? Because I think this one quality that David had, he doggedly, with great determination, decided not to deviate from his devotion. He decided not to deviate from his commitments. He decided not to deviate from keeping his word. The Bible says God desires truth in the inward part. We ought to be Christians who place a premium on truth. Ought we not? We ought to be people of integrity. Um, we ought to show the world what it means to, to, to be someone who models God's character. God invites us now to His table, doesn't He? He invites us to His table. One day there'll be a marriage supper of the Lamb, Lamb, and we'll really get to go to His table, literally. Amen? But it's all because He keeps His what? Promises. He keeps His covenant. And we ought to be covenant keepers as Christians. We ought not be people that are in, undependable. Uh, here today, gone tomorrow. You know, they call it alcohol Christianity. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Makes a big show and then it's gone. We ought not be that kind of person that the pastor can't depend on. Uh, we ought to be the kind of person that is a person of our word. We ought to be 
modeling that character that God has. David showed that in the story with Mephibosheth. Hosea showed it with Gomer. What about us? What about us? Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you so much for these vivid pictures in Scripture that give us a great insight into your character. Or as we see over and over again in the life of the nation of Israel, there would be rebellion, there would be retribution, there would be repentance, and then restoration. And over and over again, you never tired. The Bible says how great is your long-suffering. Thank you so much for being a promise keeper. Lord, I know that my salvation is based on your word, your promise, your, your covenant. Thank you, Father, that you've given me that same challenge in Scripture, that I need to be a person of my word, a person of my covenant, a person of my promise. Help us as Christians to model that in our Christian lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.